We're in a series of, for Advent called Christmas and the Psalms. As we come into Advent, uh, traditionally, the Advent season is a season of waiting. And unlike the season in America, um, where it's very much a joyous, festive, really Christmas season, in the church calendar, that doesn't actually start till December 25th. The Advent season, which is the month prior, is really a somber, quiet, reflective uh, season of waiting. And that's how it was for years and years until marketing took over America. Um, and so it's not that way. But the church calendar doesn't function quite like the American uh, uh, social calendar does. And I say all that because this particular sermon is much more in line with the church calendar. So if you're expecting sort of a happy, joyous Advent sermon, you're probably going to be a little disappointed today. But this is a messianic psalm. It is about Jesus. It's quoted uh, numbers of times in the New Testament and numbers of times by Jesus himself. But it's not an easy psalm. It's not one that we would normally turn to at Christmas. So I just want you to be aware of all that as we get into that, um, that this is going to be much more of a traditional Advent um, sermon as uh, compared to what we would expect out there. But we still get to Jesus, so don't panic. So... It is a long chapter. We're in Psalm 69. There are 36 verses. So we're going to read those as we go through. Um, and so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and for making us your people. You've brought us to this difficult messianic psalm to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand such a blunt word. It expresses the heart of your servants, King David and King Jesus, when each of them felt overwhelmed in the very depths of their soul, when they felt abandoned, when they felt shamed beyond the capacity to survive. And Lord, you know that there are brothers and sisters in this room today who have felt some of those things. So I pray this word would not hurt them, but comfort them and point them back to you. So Lord, because your word is profitable and it's not only able to correct us, but to build us up, we pray that you would use this psalm to build up the saints, to make us to be mighty in prayer, trusting in trial, and praising you because of your glorious person and providence. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. Amen. Dr. Sharon Hirsch is an adjunct professor of counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And at a recent conference, uh, she was telling a story about going on the mission field and visiting a village in a region of Cambodia that used to be a stronghold for the Khmer Rouge. Now, the Khmer Rouge was a violent, evil sect which, of course, gave the Cambodians the violent, evil dictator, Pol Pot, who was responsible for enough torture and murder to constitute genocide. 
And the people in this village, Dr. Hirsch said, never venture far from home. Most of them have never been outside of their village. Not because they don't want to go, but because it's too dangerous. And while the days of the Camar Rouge are long gone, the pain and anger left behind is not. And to have been identified with the Camar Rouge in any way and coming from their region of the country is now to put your own life at risk. So this village, these villagers, they're castoffs. They're prisoners in their own land. And for the most part, they are hated by the rest of the country because of the sins of their forefathers, the Camarouche. And she said that she went to this village and it was a very somber and sad place. But then she went to their worship service that they had at this little tiny village church. And she said in this village of castoffs, this was the most vibrant experience she'd ever witnessed. There was so much joy, so much emotion, so much confession, so much exaltation, so much desire for God. She said these people were, were sad and depressed and walked into this service and became excited and expectant and enthusiastic and enthralled. And so she asked one of her guides, is it always like this? He said, oh yeah. Because they believe that God is the only one that wants them. And so they want him. They believe that God is the only one who wants them. So they want him. Think about that. They believe that God is the only one that wants them. That's both heartbreaking and thrilling at the same time. To be totally known, Dr. Hirsch said, and still to be wanted is a way to true freedom. And in that service, they quoted the end of our passage for today. Psalm 69 or near the end. Verses 32 and 33, where a similar point is made, it says, When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Now, as we approach Christmas, you hear people asking about Christmas and reflecting on it. What is Christmas all about? We used to assume that everybody knew what it was all about. That's not really a safe assumption uh, anymore. Or they'll ask about Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Why is a big deal? Why do we all celebrate his birthday? As uh, Josh told us. <coughs> and we're going to be answering those questions this month by spending Christmas um, in the Psalms. In particular, we're looking at five Messianic Psalms. Now, they're called Messianic Psalms, <coughs> not just because they prophesy about the Messiah, but also because Jesus picked them out, or the apostles picked them out, and specifically applied them uh, to Jesus. So most of the Psalms are either written about David or they're written by David. Um, they talk about the psalmist, the circumstances of the psalmist. But Jesus is saying they're also talking and foreshadowing me. So these psalms are read, and I told you last week, I had two 
different levels, two reference points. They refer to the historical context of the person who's writing the psalm. The psalms refer to the historical context of the time they're written in, when, if it's written by David, when David was writing, approximately 1,000 uh, BC. But ultimately, they refer to a greater David than David, a greater king than this king, a greater warrior than this warrior, a greater suffering servant, and so on. And this psalm, Psalm 69, is quoted by Jesus in a really interesting and remarkable way. In the Gospel of John, he's talking to his disciples. And uh, they're discussing why people are opposing him. Why is there so much hostility? And he says in John 15, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. That phrase comes from Psalm 69. So what's going on? Psalm 69, of course, is written by King David. And it's about him and his suffering and his problems and about the people who hate him. And like all the other Psalms, it has these two reference points. So it not only refers to David and his suffering, but it refers to the one who's greater than David and who has greater suffering. And Jesus is letting us know in John 15 that Psalm 69 is talking about him. Now, that doesn't mean every single word or every single verse in this psalm um, is about him. Some of the verses obviously are not. But it does mean that Jesus read this psalm again and again and again, and he identified with it. And he understood the language to actually describe what he was going through. So imagine with me, you have a friend, and they're going through tremendous suffering. And you're trying to minister to them. And you come across their diary. You would treat it as secret and confidential, almost sacred, wouldn't you? Please say yes. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't actually pick it up and read it and say, oh, let me see what's going on with, it, with them. Some of you might, please don't. Um, but you treat it with some degree of respect for their privacy. That's kind of what we have here in Psalm 69. You have what amounts to the prayer diary of the Son of God, an expression of his anguish and suffering for us. There is so much that we can learn. We could spend weeks in this psalm, but we only have time today to look at a couple things. So first of all, it's a prayer of David and Jesus. It's the lament of David and Jesus. It's the plea of David and Jesus. And it's the confidence of David and Jesus. I just gave you the four blanks. Um, the fourth point is the shortest, but it's the most important. So let's turn to Psalm 69. We're going to start with David's messianic prayer. First four verses. David's messianic prayer. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. 
I have come in the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. So before we consider Psalm 69 as pertaining to Christ, we have to understand it in its original context as King David is praying as one who's greatly distressed because of the persecution that he's suffering for championing the cause of the Lord. And overwhelmed with opposition, he cries out for help. Verse 1, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Those are the words of somebody who's overwhelmed by suffering. Verse 2, I sink in deep mire. There is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. Have you ever felt like that? You're sinking, and you can't get a foothold. David describes himself as a drowning man or someone who's stuck in a constraining mire, which is like a swamp or a mud bog. And he's crying out to God, having reached the end of his endurance. And the reality is Christians sometimes feel just like that. You face problems for which no solution is readily available. And we remember what a strong person David was, same David that faced Goliath. So he's not a wimp. He's not somebody who's generally scared of what's going on around him. It becomes clear this situation's pretty severe. Yet for all his strength, David's still a man. And just like us, he reaches the end of his rope. He's dismayed. Not because he failed to pray, but because he, he thinks his prayers don't seem to make any difference. Verse 3, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. This is not an expression of unbelief. David keeps praying, even as he talks about how weary it is to do so. He doubts that he could continue to call on God. He's worn out, waiting on God for help. The cause afflicting David is being surrounded by opponents who are assailing him with no legitimate reason. Verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. That's the phrase that Jesus took upon himself. David couldn't understand his opposition, and since his enemies accuse him of false charges, it's hard to defend yourself against things you didn't do. And throughout history, that's called caused uh, untold anguish for Christians when they're hated and accused without just cause. Tradition states the first great Roman persecution arose because uh, Nero, who was nuts, uh, blamed Christians for his own crime of burning down part of the city of Rome. In addition to physical suffering, it hurts when you're unable to defend yourself against false charges. And today, Christians face the prospect of being accused of bigotry, even being prosecuted for hate crimes, merely for holding to the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. It's bad enough to be despised, but it especially hurts when you're misrepresented and falsely accused. 
And think about some of you, have you ever been isolated for your faith, perhaps in your family, perhaps at work? And you've been treated unfairly and you've asked God for help only to find out the mistreatment continues. If so, then David's cry in Psalm 69 may be a help in bringing your frustration before the Lord. Now, as I've already told you, Jesus applies these words to himself in John 15. So Psalm 69 refutes the thought that because of his divinity, Jesus' emotions somehow were not affected by the hatred that was inflicted on him. Probably the best commentary of what Jesus experienced and what he went through was found in Hebrews chapter 5. It says there, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. These verses tell us Jesus had to undergo this kind of suffering in order to be our savior. He wasn't exempt from feeling overwhelmed or from the weariness of the suffering that uh, David set down so many years before. Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father is not offered up in the context of an easy life. On the contrary, he experienced all the bitterness of injustice and all the malice that our world has to offer. And he learned obedience in that kind of world. So he'd be able to deliver us from that kind of world. And instead of being astonished when the world unfairly hates us, Christians should realize that our suffering is part and parcel of being united to Christ by faith. So David starts with this blunt prayer, but he's not done. Second part of his prayer is equally blunt because it's David's messianic lament. His messianic lament, starting at verse 5. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. <clears throat> for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. David's hurting cry leads to this sanctified lament 
that displays his true motives. He's already stated that he was hated without cause. And it seems surprising that he begins by confessing his sins before the Lord. Verse 5, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Here's evidence that David's not self-righteous in his anger. Still, it's not the statement we expect him to make. When most of us are wrongly accused, what do we do? We profess our innocence. I didn't do that. How can you accuse me of that? That's wrong. David shows us a more godly attitude. He's tried to live an upright life. He's grieved by these false accusations, yet he still knows that he's guilty before God. And rather than make him more prideful, his experience of unjust suffering humbles him. Now, scholars wrestle with how such a confession could be found in a messianic psalm since Jesus was without sin. I think, though, there are simply some things about David's life that can't be applied to Christ. And this verse simply expresses David's own confession. But it's very interesting. The main reason he's concerned about his own sin as he fears the accusations that are being made against him, even though they're false, will serve to discourage other believers. He prays, verse 6, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Instead of worrying over our reputations, David shows us we should be more interested in how our conduct affects others. And in the midst of his sorrow, he's able to claim that his sufferings are caused by his commitment to God. Verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. Similar words should comfort everyone who suffers persecution for having faith in Christ. But, I mean, we're on an emotional roller coaster in this psalm. And then David's spirit is nearly broken in verse 8 by rejection from fellow believers. He says, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. That's got to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. I've become a stranger to my brothers. Now, I think we should do our best to make sure this doesn't happen to fellow believers who are suffering disgrace for their faithfulness for their faithfulness to God, for faithfulness to God's word. We have to stand up for them, and we have to be willing to defend them. And it's hard enough for those who remain faithful to Christ to be mocked and mistreated, but the betrayal by fellow believers is a grief too painful to bear. And even when we have differences with one another, whenever fellow believers are resolutely standing on the word of God before the world, our policy should always be to rally to their side, to uphold them in prayer, despite the inevitable failings and mistakes, and to never try to gain the world's favor at their expense. And then in verse 9, we encounter another statement applied to Christ. He says, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproach of those who reproach you has fallen on me. Early in his ministry, 
Jesus responded in outrage to the shopkeepers who had taken over the temple courts, and he physically drove them from God's house of prayer. And instead of praising Jesus for this righteous uh, act, the religious leaders criticized him because they were getting money from the shopkeepers. And if there were no shopkeepers uh, in the temple courts, then they wouldn't be getting that money. And reflecting on this incident, the apostles saw this situation as fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 9. In John chapter 2, it says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. I don't know if you're keeping count of how many times this shows up in the New Testament. I'll let you skip to the end. The number is nine that you're looking for. Now, since Jesus is motivated by a concern for God, the reproach that he received indicts his enemies actually as uh, enemies of God. And more importantly, remember, Jesus was willing to set aside his own good name for the salvation of his people. The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 69, making this point in Romans 15. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, there's a lot more in these verses that we just don't have time for. But suffice it to say that unjust suffering should drive us to prayer. And lament is a valid form of prayer. Now, lament is not complaining and bemoaning because this thing happened over there and it has this negative effect on me. Lament is going before God that this thing happened, regardless of how it affects me. There's evil in the world, and we lament that evil. So there could be some terrible situation that affects you, and you're very upset about it, but we should be equally upset about the terrible situation that affects another person and doesn't affect you. And lament is basically going before God and saying, God, you have to do something. The situation is beyond our ability to fix. And so David starts with a very blunt prayer. He continues with this very honest lament. But he's not done. Because the third part of his prayer is actually the hardest part of this psalm. Because it's his messianic plea. David's messianic plea starting at verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes were all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. So verse 22, we are entering into what is known as an imprecatory psalm. This means it's a psalm where the person writing the psalm is asking God to bring judgment against his enemies. We don't often pray like this. Hear what David says. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. 
for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This is the most difficult section of Psalm 69. This is the imprecatory section, the prayer for judgment against the enemies. And yet, it's the most clearly messianic. Here, David prays for God to inflict on his enemies a violent judgment that will afflict them as they have tormented him. First, David pleads that God will take things that are normally are a blessing and turn them into curses for his foes. Verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Second, David asks for fear to overtake his oppressors. Verse 23, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Then he prays for them to experience the bitter frustration of abandonment. Verse 25, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. The essence of David's prayer is for God's wrath to strike his foes. Verse 24, pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. Now, perhaps you pray like that. I hope not often. Because honestly, this prayer is pretty harsh. It certainly seems that David's harsh pleas are kind of out of sync with the gracious agenda of Jesus, who commanded Christians to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5. And the Apostle Paul added that we're to overcome evil with good, Romans 12. So how do we justify David's harsh plea for judgment? Well, first we should realize David's prayer for God's wrath is referenced in the New Testament not as a plea from David, but as a prophecy of what must occur under God's just judgment. For example, when Paul is discussing the failure of the Jews to believe the gospel because they sought to obtain salvation by good works, he explains that hardness of heart by appealing to Psalm 69. Romans 11, he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, now this is a direct quote from Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Just as David wanted his enemies judged through this cursed use of otherwise good things, Paul saw the Jews missing salvation because they trusted in their heritage as God's covenant people, thereby neglecting to trust in Christ. And the apostle doesn't want them to come to harm. They're his countrymen. But he's warning them of the consequences of unbelief. And he provides the same warning to us. Other New Testament quotations <coughs> show that David's prayer is not so much a request for God to destroy his enemies as it is a prophecy that this will inevitably happen to such people. 
Judgment is your future if you oppose God. That's what David's saying. And in that is a plea to, therefore, don't oppose God. Peter quotes Psalm 69 as a prophecy of Judas's death. Remember, he was paid to betray Jesus, and he took that money and he bought a field. And Acts 1.20 says about that, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. David's, David's plea expresses a warning about God's judgment. It's typical of the Bible, including the teaching of Jesus. The answer to the predicament of Psalm 69 comes to us in the atoning death of Christ the Messiah. David concludes his prayer with an appeal for the salvation that Christ secured on the cross. He says, verse 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. It's a good prayer. So whether we're afflicted by the sins of others or afflicted by the guilt of our own sins, which we all are, then our only hope for salvation is in Christ. God saves through the cross where people suffer, where Jesus suffered, the reproach of his own people. David started with a blunt prayer. He continued with an honest lament. He followed it with a harsh plea. Thankfully, he saved the best for last. And I hope it goes quick. We end with his messianic confidence. For the Christian, suffering never has the last word. The last word is always one of praise. It's always one of worship. With this in mind, looking beyond his troubles, looking to the redemption God's going to provide through the coming Savior, David concludes this very difficult psalm by rejoicing over the greatness of God's salvation. He's found salvation in God himself, and he wants to please the Lord through worship. Verses 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Second, putting his own cares into God's hand. David again concerns himself with other people. He's in the midst of this terrible suffering. And he says, but Lord, we have to consider the people around us. His concern for other believers is expressed through the effects of true and sincere worship, verse 32. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. If you're trapped in a village in Cambodia, that's good news passage. It sounds to us like God likes everybody. That's okay. We don't necessarily read it as a good news passage. All right. David finishes with confidence. Verse 34. 
actually verse 35. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and the people shall dwell there and possess it. David sees the riches of God's blessing. He's focusing on God. God says, I'll deliver the city. Jerusalem in David's day, the new Jerusalem in our day. He says the people will dwell there and possess it. He's promising them a wonderful place to be with him. Notice the order of the blessings. The primary goal is worship. Please God through praise. We rejoice in the how blesses our fellow believers and it renews our own confidence in God. Our confidence goes strong like David's when we gaze on the Savior whose sacrificial death is anticipated by this psalm. We look to the cross as the guarantee of all that we hope to receive. Not only will God forgive us our sins, but he makes everything right. He gives us a city where we can dwell with him and we possess all that he promises us. When you realize that, then you can pray about your suffering and turn in hope to the God of our salvation. That's what David's doing here. He says, we're going through a hard time. But look to God. There's a great salvation. That's where our hope is. So in summary, we have King David, not a perfect man, verse 5, but a righteous man, verse 28. He loves the glory of God. He trusts God's mercy for ransom and for redemption, verse 18. He stands up for the humble, verse 32. Even though he's suffering this undeserved persecution, but in the end, he's pointing us beyond himself. As I said at the beginning, in the Psalms, if it's about David, then it's also about a greater David. And we have a greater David, the son of David, whom David himself refers to as Lord, who's Christ the Messiah. And on the cross, in the most important moment in history, Jesus brings his life to a close by intentionally fulfilling Psalm 69. We see this as verses 19 through 21. It's very difficult to figure out how these verses apply to David. It's easy to see how they apply to Christ. Look back again at those verses. We have a direct fulfillment of verse 21 in the accounts of Christ's death. David says there, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Think about the cross. Jesus' death literally fulfills this prophecy. Luke 23, the soldiers mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine. David's sorrow prefigures the suffering of Christ as he died on the cross. Jesus took upon himself the plea for judgment in Psalm 69 in order to save us from that very same judgment. Evidently, Jesus lived in this psalm and absorbed this psalm and made this psalm part of his very own life. Otherwise, I don't know how we explain the events of the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross in horrible agony, and we read John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, 
I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. According to the apostle John, Jesus died fulfilling Psalm 69. What more glorious tribute could you pay to a psalm? The very psalm that we think is harsh and difficult and blunt, that this psalm is a problem, is the psalm that Jesus lived in. It's the psalm that carried him to the cross and through the cross and beyond the cross to you and me. Bringing us a salvation that we could never earn or ever deserve. And that's why this Advent, we wait. Because we know we have a greater David, Christ the Messiah. And he's coming again to claim his own, those who worship him in hope, even when life is hard. Think about that. You need to pray. Thank you for your patience. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our suffering and then see our Savior. Thank you that you've given us a Messiah who suffered and died for us. I pray that everyone here might thank you for this difficult psalm, a hard psalm, but you have given it to us to supply words of prayer and praise in our own days of distress. May we see your hope and strength in the psalm. And so this month, work in each of us this Advent. As we learn these Messianic psalms, seeing what they teach us about Christ the Messiah. Thank you for giving us a picture of a psalm that Christ claimed for himself. And so draw us ever closer to your son, our Savior. Remind us once again that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.